Thank you for downloading this documentary from RTE Radio 1. For more information, visit rte.ie forward slash doc on 1977. Nineteen seventy seven Steve Biko dies in police custody in South Africa. Dublin beats our man the All Ireland football final, and Jack Lynch leads Fina Fall back into the Doyle with its biggest majority ever. In Limerick, the Ferenka plant, manufacturers of steel cord for tires, closes with a loss of fourteen hundred jobs. My name is Frank Prendergast and in 1973 I was appointed as branch secretary of the Shannon Airport branch of the Transport Union. I looked after a big branch outside of one of the most important branches in the country from the aviation point of view, the airport, but also the big industrial estate with some of the finest and most important um, multinational companies in the region working there. So I was... Um, there and I was there for about four years um, before I became Mayor of Limerick. I was also on the City Council from 1974 and I was Mayor of Limerick in 1977 to 78 and it was during my mayoralty that this whole Ferenca thing blew up towards October, um, November of that particular year, 1977. Nancy Martin and her husband Jack had also returned from England. Jack Martin became a shop steward for the ITGWU. Oh, I'd always think, right, if I, if my, my daughter lives over in Maru, which isn't far from there, so when I got to Limerick that way, I always think, and I think of myself, I'd, I, if he was walking from four to twelve, myself and my daughter would go down and pick him up at twelve o'clock. He might go in with somebody, or he might go in, he might get a lift in with somebody, because we had two cars at the time. I don't know what, why I'd go down, but we might go down at night and pick him up. And the crowds of people, if you came home that way from, from work, four o'clock in the evening, the surge of men and the people that came out of that was nobody's business. It was, it was like a football match coming out of that. That meant an awful lot of money gone out of the villages. There was, a, we'll say, Capa White. They even came from Tipperary, Capa White, Dune. Capamore, Palace Green. You can you can name all the villages. You can imagine, you can well imagine, all around Castle Connell, they all work there. So everybody was everybody was hit by it closing. Everybody, including ourselves. Arthur Quinlan, who is still a journalist, covered the Ferenca story in forensic detail for both RTE and the newspapers. It all started during the, the construction work. There were several disputes, uh, unofficial strikes uh, going on, because you must remember there were something like 1,400, ultimately 1,500 workers on the, the construction of Ferenca. It was a huge plant. It, it was, the roof alone covered uh, something like 11, 11 acres. And the building of Ferenca was rather interesting. It was, it was quite new in, in, in Irish style. The, the, the work the, the area was to be covered was so great that they, they laid the, ro- the road, or I should say the, the flooring, down in the same way that they build, build roads because it's the equivalent of something like, like um, eight miles of a, of a main road. 
in, in, in that, that factory. So they brought in the, uh, the same process in building the... Before ever they, they built the, fa- the factory itself, they laid the, the, the floor down and then built the walls around it and everything like that. But uh, they had trouble all the time because they kept recruiting people very, very rapidly. For instance, they recruited 450 people within a couple of days, I remember, in, in their workers for the building, without any screening at all. There were all kinds of fellows with, with all their own problems, and they brought their own problems, private problems and private rows and uh, private wars in, into Farinka. But the Dutch couldn't figure out what was going on. And they had, uh, I remember, something like 11, 11 disputes uh, in, in, in one year there, which, which uh, cost a lot of money. For instance, there was uh, that particular year, they, they had something like 25,000 man-hours lost uh, on, on work. And then there was uh, uh, the following year, where they, the year they had uh, 11 disputes, it worked out at about 40,000 man-hours, or 2% of the total hours worked by the, by the, by the company. And the, the, it was then, of course, in 1973, during the building of the, of the plant, the, the workforce went up to 1,500 of all sorts of people in there. In fact, there, there was this very amusing situation at the time. One day it would be the electricians. The next day it was some other t- uh, workers uh, having their own disputes uh, with the company. And what they did was they'd have separate entrances that knocked down a piece of the wall and the, the workers would go in the workers not affected by this particular dispute would go in the other side whilst the picket was on in front of the gate involved where, where the, let us say, the electricians or the plumbers or whatever they were working. So they, they, they solved the problem in an Irish way that way. Tony Walsh, now a SIP2 official, returned from England to work at Ferenca and became a shop steward for the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. I started there in, in 1973, which is quite some time ago now, and um, became involved with the union almost immediately. And I, I can't remember the precise time, but I, I was elected um, secretary of the section, which was about a 1,000 members there, thereabouts. And it was quite a difficult environment. First off, you're learning the ropes as a, a trade union activist at a representative level in an industrial relations environment that wasn't very good. Uh, there were a lot of problems there, as you know. It was a continuous shift arrangement. The working environment in the main shops was not uh, ideal with a very, very high noise level. Pay wasn't the greatest. And uh, I think that the, all of the industrial relations policies the company tried to put in place were never well thought out. Uh, I think, uh, in hindsight, the thing was rushed. Uh, it was an industrial project providing 1,300 jobs at a difficult time. And it was put in place, I believe, too quickly. And um, a lot of problems arose out of that. His car was found about 100 yards from his home. There was no sign of a struggle and the keys were still in the ignition. A girl with a Northern Ireland accent rang a Dublin evening newspaper at a quarter to twelve saying, we are holding Dr. Harema of the Ferenca factory as a prisoner and he will be released safely in 48 hours if our demands are met. If not, he will be executed. She demanded the immediate release of three prisoners, Kevin Mallon, Dr. Rose Dugdale and Jim Highland. Wish to 
earnestly appeal to the people who have kidnapped my husband to return him safely to me and my family. My husband is a good and kind man, devoted to his family and to his work. One of the demands was met at midnight with the closing of the Ferenka factory at Limerick for the moment. Guardless searches today were concentrated in the Castle Connell area of County Limerick. These demands are tantamount to a request to open the prison gates and allow three convicted persons free into our society with immunity thereafter. These are demands which cannot be conceded. This afternoon, 300 troops from the 3rd Infantry Battalion and a large force of Gorthy began checking remote and disused houses in the foothills of the Schlievebloom Mountains. The kidnappers apparently have extended their time limit, but the situation has remained in deadlock and the Dutch businessman's life remains presumably in jeopardy. Dr Hugh Kreinhoff, the chairman of the parent company, confirmed that Ferenka had a plane standing by to cope with any emergency. But so far there had been no indication that the kidnappers might ask for a plane. Mrs Herriman left the coordinating centre early this morning in tears. She was, said Mr Hooter, now showing the terrible strain. And the search switched to Shannon Airport for a while today when Guardian troops carried out a house-to-house -house search and questioned residents. While this was going on, all entrances and exits were closed. One newspaper this morning shouted aloud in its headlines, He's alive! But alas, the reference to the fate of the kidnapped Dr. Herrema seems to have been premature. He is blindfolded, um, he is tied, and uh, he, his ears have been uh, stuffed with cotton wool. And of course, in that eventuality, there is, uh, must be great stress uh, on the condition of Dr. Herrema. But on the other hand, um, the company uh, directors uh, have told me that there is no man in the entire company, physically or psychologically, uh, stronger to cope with such stress as Dr. Herima. The Ferenka company says it's satisfied from a tape recording that Dr. Herima is still alive. A voice accepted by the Ferenka company as Dr. Herima's was heard saying, this is a message from the Irish Liberation Organization. The speaker went on, if you ask for proof again that I am alive, they threatened to cut my foot off and send it to you. Mentally and physically, I have suffered already. Please do not put my life in further danger by looking for me. Please help me. Not to my family. The new mediator is already working on the case. He's Mr. Philip Flynn, a trade union official in his 30s. There has been and there will be no compromise on any matter. After the discovery of Dr. Heruma in a house at Monastreven in County Kildare this morning, special branch men and Gorda officers are trying to persuade the kidnappers to release the Dutch industrialist. He's being held at gunpoint in an upstairs room. Today's break came on the 19th day of the kidnapped drama. Shortly after the arrival of the Gordi, several shots were fired, believed to be a warning from the kidnappers. Later, Dr. Harima was seen at an upstairs window with his kidnappers. They had a gun to his head and threatened to shoot him if the guards should try and rescue him. The task of freeing the Ferenka chief is now at its most delicate stage. From what I gather from the Gardaí, um, the going is, is fairly tough in there. Uh, apparently the dialogue is, is, uh, is not very productive. We heard Dr. Harima shout aloud, his face pressed near to the broken window pane. Dr. Harima said, help me, then a pause and tell the police to stay away.
Inside the house holding Dr. Herrema at gunpoint are the man and woman believed to be Eddie Gallagher and Marion Coyle. It's the 11th day of the siege and the 28th day of the Dutch businessman's captivity. Uh, the normal requirements of food and drink are being met reasonably. Well, after weeks of waiting, the kidnapping of the Dutch industrialist Tide Herrema had its happy outcome on Friday night. The jubilation, of course, wasn't confined to Ireland. In Holland, too, there was delight at the freeing of their compatriot and appreciation, too, of the manner in which the affair was handled. The Sunday Times, in an editorial today, says the end of Dr. Herrema's ordeal is a triumph, first and above all, for what it calls this admirable Dutchman. Secondly, says the newspaper, the Irish government deserves the thanks of the world for refusing to bargain with the kidnappers or concede to their demands. I heard it about 20 minutes after it happened. Uh, I was the on-site representative of the workforce and immediately it was known. The company were contacted. I was contacted to be advised uh, of what happened. I think maybe less than an hour after he was taken, which was sometime before 8 o'clock, half 7, 20 to 8 or something like that. He was uh, an affable sort of person to meet, uh, um, but a tough taskmaster as well. He knew uh, what he was there for and he knew what his objectives were. Um, so so uh, hard enough to deal with at that level, but over a cup of coffee and a chat with people, he was sort of a very decent man. Um, and beyond that, I don't have any other memories of him. I, mean, I did encounter him quite a lot during that uh, period prior to his kidnapping and met him on a few occasions after it. Um, it would, obviously, for a man to go through what he did go through in that um, and the way he subsequently told the story um, suggests uh, a person who's, uh, you know, sound and uh, stood well in their own feet, to use the term. First of all, there was the Hirama thing that had happened two years before that. And this was a huge international blow um, to Limericks and the Midwest region here. And Shannon Development have worked tirelessly um, to set up a huge industrial base there. And even to this day, we the Midwest region has the second biggest U.S investment and multinational investment in Ireland outside of Dublin. That's still there. And we had to be extremely conscious. I mean, those of us in the trade union movement and the job creation agencies, if we were bringing outside companies to come in, that nothing would be put in their way to induce decent, good employing companies to come in here. That was why the Herrema thing was a major hiccup in that whole uh, development there. I was a, would have been an official working away in my job outside in Shannon Airport when that happened. I was two years an official, a full-time official outside there at the time, but of course there was a huge state of shock. Um, Teddy Coughlin would have been the mayor of Limerick at that time, and of course the whole region was aghast um, when this broke out, like that a Dutch internationalist, uh, internationally known businessman, industrialist, had been captured and um, for whatever political reasons that were there at that time. But industrially, it was absolute suicide for this region. So what they did was, I don't know who organised it, I know who was in the, at the head of the protest, uh, the mayor and the corporation and the trade union movement, the official, officialdom, if you like, moved in 
and there was a big demonstration, a parade in the city to protest against this kind of activity because of its damage to the region in the city. There was a huge turnout that day. There are two types of things which will cause a strike. This is a basic or friction. Basic would be to do with wages, conditions, holidays, shift pay, overtime, or friction if there was a row between personalities or foremen and that. Oh, well, the people locally and the public locally would be very much aware of the horrific um, potential of that strike if anything happened because... Um, Industrial relations at that time in Ireland were in a kind of a parlous state, and they used to be running these. Um, the FUE used to be running, the State Federated Union of Employers used to be running these tables um, at the end of the year, pointing out how many men days were lost through strikes and that. So everybody would have been particularly conscious. Um, that unless there was an early resolution to the strike there, that the longer it went on, the more damage um, it would do to the region. And I need hardly tell you... As, as I said, you had earlier disputes in, in, in the building of the business, and quite a lot of the workers, uh, the, the construction workers, went into the plant. Now, construction workers... Are, are by their nature are different to 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 people working on 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 factory floors or big big plants like that, but the, the, these by these workers were unaccustomed to the type of of regimentation that 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 exists in in plants, particularly remember by the the Dutch. But I can recall very well there was a man who was working on the on the floor. He was an operator, uh, an operator working on on the on the plant floor, and he was asked to clean out the toilets. And he was also asked to mop up the floors and uh, and hand out the tea during during the, during the minting. So he objected to doing that, and then his colleagues uh, heard about his objection, that because he was then threatened by by the company that he'd be suspended, and he was suspended. So of course the the the, the shift I remember it was the four to twelve shift in Ferenca that evening. They supported him and demanded that he be reinstated, and they took an official ac- action. Uh, unless not only would he be reinstated, but the final warning that he was given should be removed from his files. Now, normally, uh, this kind of a dispute would 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 uh, was just one of many disputes that had taken place during the previous five years. But this one got a bit different because the inter- an interunion dispute arose out of the, out of that one. Uh, there was a man called Philip Burns. He was the chairman of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union uh, Committee in the factory. In the factory, and uh, he uh, was the leader of of the the strikers. Yes, true. And there was a great unhappiness at that time with with the transport union. They didn't feel the transport union were helping them very well. Uh, they felt that the transport union were leaning on the side of of, of the workers. Now. That may or may not be true. I don't know. And I, I, uh, all I know is that that's was the way the workers felt at the, at the time. Well, the background to that apparently was, and I have to say that the Marine Port and General Workers Union, which had been outside <coughs> the official Irish Congress of Trade Unions at the time, it had been expelled because of other activities in which it had been engaged. It was alleged that they were poaching and that and they were suspended from Congress at the time. 
but was unprecedented what they did. First of all, the, the transport union strike was unofficial, but whether it was official or unofficial, it was never heard of anywhere in the industrialised world that another union would move in to try and poach members or to take the members. Now, it was said that um, the workers outside there appealed to the marine port um, and that was probably true there because they wouldn't be looked at by any of the official unions because of the unofficial nature of it. And um, that the marine port would say that they were only responding to that kind of an appeal. But they should have, because there were some very sensible men at the head of the marine port um, uh, Seamus Redmond now would have been one of them that I admired very much but they should have gone um, ahead and said to the workers no I'm sorry we can't deal with you, go back to work and settle your affairs there and then if you want to appeal to us afterwards in the normal way but where the normal transfers go on actual, under 147D um, the, the section of the constitution of Congress that could have been looked at like that um, but it was absolutely devastating that another union would have become embroiled in the situation, like which really compounded the difficulties there, you know. And then they gradually became went over to the to the Marine Port and, and General Workers Union, and and in September of of uh, nineteen seventy seven, yes, they they had a meeting. And uh, they, 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 Burns uh, called in the press and he said, we will be meeting uh, in the Savoy uh, on the 27th of September, I remember it well, 27th of September. I said, I want you all in there. We have a very important announcement to, to make. And it was 450 of the, of the workers in Ferenca turned up out of, the, out of the 900 production workers. 450 of them turned up at the Savoy. And all but 24 decided to leave, the trans- to leave the transport union and join the Marine Port and General Work Workers Union. And that was the beginning of this, of this great rivalry. And then it all took a bad turn when eventually uh, Philip Burns uh, was suspended himself uh, despite an agreement which had been reached with the transport union that any- no reprisals would be taken against the people who took part in that, that strike. Burns himself was suspended pending a hearing at the, at the Labour Court. So, and then a number of shop stewards who were also involved in that, that strike, they too were, were suspended. And when the word got around that uh, this had happened, they, 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 all the workers walked out, and then after a couple of days, the unofficial strike was made official by the Marine Port and General, General Workers Union, and that was the beginning of, 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 of all the, 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 of the end of, of, of Farika. Um, this, was, this was the situation that Van Weingarten um, said to me um, when I went out to meet him there, that we would just have to try and settle or resolve that situation, but there was no resolution to it. I was brought in um, to see if we could help um, the, the local officials um, in their um, appeals to the workers to go back to work, and I did. I went out and I spoke to the workers outside, um, with officials of the our own union, but also with the um, Trades Council representatives. And the Trades Council were very supportive on that. Now, naturally, they said had to support, or would, of course, the official uh, Irish Congress of Trade Unions line, that the, call, the strike should be called off 
and go back to work and we'd settle down and discuss our difficulties. Um, but that didn't happen. I would have pointed out to them um, that, look, we, we know, um, we're listening to what you're telling us about the difficulties there, but we cannot support you because um, of the clauses in the House Agreement um, which laid down that any divisions between the company and the union and unions would be discussed normally, they'd be processed normally through the Labour Court or whatever. And then, if having gone through the Labour Court, if um, you were still uh, dissatisfied with the findings of the Labour Court, you would then, as happens hundreds of times, um, you would then declare an official strike um, to remedy the grievances that were there. But uh, that fell on deaf ears, unfortunately, when people, for a whole variety of um, reasons, if you like, that was bitterness, stubbornness, um, that didn't happen and they didn't respond to what was kind of called logic or reason um, from the official trade union people like myself. You see, my husband said he often went over to work and he'd say, what are you doing out there, he said to one lad he got a job for. And the lad was out walking up and down or sitting on a ditch. He said, what are you doing there, he said. You're, I'm after getting you into a good job. You'll be there for life. You can go and do your farming as well. And he said, well, I'm following the crowd. Jackie said, get back in, he said, and look after your job. He said, they're not interested in you or anybody else. They only need the support. So he said, a couple of weeks ago, he said, you had nothing. Now he said, you have a job and wages. So my husband passed the strike every day because he was... Uh, um, he wouldn't change over to any other union anyway, no way. So he was he was devastated and he went and he said to me, no, Nancy, at this stage of my life, he said, he was happy there. He'd be inside there at half past seven in the morning. He was over the dye shop. Well, he wasn't over the dye shop. He was a quality controller in the dye shop. You know, he said, I'm not going to work for anybody. I'm not going to work for anybody anymore, Nancy. He said, I'm going to try something myself. In the trade union movement, you get these political elements of all different persuasions and backgrounds and they try and get their people um, into key positions like shop stewards and influence the movement. And we had to deal very much with that in this particular region at the time, not alone with um, Ferenke. And it didn't manifest itself all that greatly in Ferenke, but it did afterwards in Ahanish as well there, you know. And... Um, Rural people are very good, upright, decent, normal people, good workers and do their work, but um, they can be easily dominated by people who have very strong political uh, views, their peer members in canteens or wherever it is like. And the rural people, when they came to me in my office as mayor, to say they were all anxious to go back to work, but they were afraid to go back or to pass the caravan. There was a caravan outside of that uh, picket. Not the picket, but the strike committee had on there. And of course, the rural fellows were afraid of their lives um, to pass in that or go to work there, you know. And no matter how much you would advise them um, that for their own good, that they should decide to go in and go back to work. And that was our official line. Because remember now, the strike was unofficial. It was unofficial. Um, but they didn't do that. And you never lecture a mob. That's one of the great things you learn in the trade union movement. You can't lecture a mob. And there was a few, uh, quite a few, 
of more or less friends of Jackie's. They weren't close friends, but they were friends and he knew them, and I still know them, that went over to the Marine port. And one morning here, while that strike was on, there was a knock on our door at five o'clock in the morning and they said that, that there's trouble at the plant and we want, it was I answered the door and we want you to come. So I said, I went in, he was in bed. I said to him, listen, there's somebody wants you to take you in a taxi. I said, over to Frankie, there's trouble there. He said, go out and tell him. He said, I'll go by myself. So he went. I told him, I said, no, listen, I said, he won't go with you. I said, I'll, he'll go in his own car. He was afraid, in actual fact, because there was so much trouble there. You know, they knew they knew he was dead against it. He was chairman of the union at the time. And they said it close. He, saw, he told my husband, he said, we will close it, he said. And Jackie told the men, he, he called them in. A big meeting in Limerick. And they didn't believe him. As a matter of fact, there was nearly a riot in there. They threw chairs and everything. Harold O'Sullivan came down, who was then the president of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, drew up a formula. And um, Van Weingarten, who was the boss over from Holland, sent for me of a Sunday as mayor of Limerick and as an official of the union. And um, although I wasn't directly involved with Frank at all, that didn't come under my remit at all. That came under all Limerick branches, number two branch in particular. But he sent for me and I went out to him to Monaline and he told me that if... Um, they didn't go back to work. He said, you must not be surprised, Mr Mayor. He said, if I tell you that I will close down the place, as I have already closed down other factories. So I appealed to him to give a chance, and we met some of the workers. I met, went out and met him on the Monday morning and explained to them what the implications were, what I had been told as Mayor of Limerick officially, that the place would close if there wasn't a return to work. And despite the best efforts of Harold O'Sullivan as President of Congress. That didn't happen. And then the awful announcement broke in November that the place was to close with the disastrous consequences for the region. It was like an atomic bomb, you know. I was working at at that particular time, I was working in the... over in in St Camillus' Hospital. I was supervisor there in the cafeteria. And I knew... I knew it was going on, and I knew because I knew quite um, a few from the of the union as well that used to be given. I was doing a course on union work as well from the hospital at that particular time, and we knew what actually was going on. Jackie told me I knew what was going on, and there was a woman with me there, uh, Geraldine Hassett, and about a year before that, she said she had asked me to ask Jackie to get a job for her husband. And I, I asked, but he did, he got him the job and he was there and he was quite happy. So we were very interested in what was going on at, at work that day. And the next thing, the phone call came through from Jackie to say, it's closed. It's closed, he said. And a very, he was very, very disappointed. He was very, very upset about it. As a matter of fact, he was so annoyed about it because he put one fellow up against the wall like that and he said, you've closed, you've, you've closed it, he said. Not on yourself, he said, but on everybody else. And I need hardly tell you, I was above in Hanratty's Hotel there on the evening which it closed when one of the journalists came in to tell me and he said to me afterwards, I went white with shock as Mayor of Limerick. And I did. I did, because it was a terrible blow. Some of the, one of the very sad, there are some of the other industries that were in the city, I can think of Stokes and McKiernan's now, which must have been there for about 
60, 70, 80 years there and were very good employers in their own way. They supplied a lot of the materials outside to Ferenca. They were one of the, the easily remembered uh, casualties of the whole system when it collapsed afterwards. And you were, so you were talking then about a dependency ratio of about 7,000 people immediately based on the job itself, but as well as that, you had all the other places. Uh, the shops there where the fellows just go in and buy their stuff, their sandwiches or whatever it was, they're going to work. And lots and lots of other people, cleaners, all those people, repair contacts all going in there. The loss of a big factory with 1,400 people, like, very, very difficult to replace that, you know. It makes a huge impact. As I said, it was like an atomic bomb at the time. The hole that would leave in the ground there, you know. It was terrible. I was devastated. Not merely as mayor of Limerick, but as a trade union official. And I knew a lot of the fellows that worked outside there. And what it meant that their jobs were gone and their families were um, would be hurt by it economically, you know. So it was a terrible blow. Do you know, I don't think they cared. I don't think they cared because they really thought with that much in, that many people employed there, they really thought that no matter what he said about going, that he, they wouldn't go. But they were mucked about, you see. They, they had these wildcat strikes every now and again. More, more often than not. And they said it close. He, saw, he told my husband, he said, we will close it, he said. And Jackie told them in. He, he called them in. They said, he's going, that's going to be closed, he said. If you don't get back into work, he said, it's an unofficial strike. We're not going back into work. And you, we're not in. That's it. They didn't go back in. And they closed it. Like that. And I'm walking home The last bus is long gone But I'm dancing in the moonlight I don't. I don't believe that the that Ferenca really closed at the, on the one issue. I think there were a combination of many issues, and what's never looked into in any kind of detail when the glib comment is made about the poor industrial relations equals the closure of Ferenca. Ferenca was on short working time prior to the closure, which is not always remembered, and the favoured production environment was the um, Ireland plant uh, belonging to Enke Glanstoff, which was the parent company. Uh, Ferenka was owned by Enke Glanstoff and Enke Glanstoff was taken over by a company called AXO. And I don't, from the information we had at the time, the um, view from um, the board of Enke Glanstoff, now controlled by AXO, was that it didn't favour the continued operation in Ireland and it questioned the wisdom of the plant moving there in the first place, not to Ireland, but moving outside of, of the uh, German West region industrial uh, area around Arnhem, that it didn't have that room for that kind of expansion. So um, there were other factors which went in to the closure of Ferenca. Um, often, uh, as it happens, that a plant may be perceived to be doing well even, and a parent company will decide to close it for reasons that have nothing to do with the local environment. That ingredient was in this mix. 
as were many others. You know, there, there, there was a poor industrial relations environment. No, we didn't. We didn't know. The, the normal trade union officials on the ground here wouldn't have known um, about the financial difficulties of um, Thorenka, although, as I mentioned to you, it had been um, made known privately to the Transport Union head office the previous January. They would have been aware of it, but as I said to you, they couldn't um, disclose that uh, nationally or publicly because it would be construed as damaging the company mortally because all their creditors would have moved in and um, looked for their money coming up to Christmas as well. It was in November. And um, it was terrible, really, you know. And you could see that you could almost catch the misery and the gloom that uh, overtook the place when that thing came out, like because we had no immediate, obvious um, replacement lined up, and certainly very difficult, understandably difficult, to induce other industrials to come in if we had had that kind of a reputation internationally where people might be kidnapped or where you'd have stoppages like that. Like, And I'm not trying to um, over-exaggerate the case and it was just a fact of life at the time. I think everybody knew it, you know. I think the feelings are always the same. Um, no matter... How difficult the situation, how difficult the environment is, uh, people still came to work in the morning because they needed the money. And if suddenly you're cut off, um, there's a lurch, there's a, there's a difficulty in facing up to, well, how, how am I going to deal with the future? There's still bills to be paid. Um, but gradually people, that, that's worked itself out, as it always does. People found alternative employments and did other things, and the world moved on. If you remember, Ferenka was not that long there. You wouldn't have had people who moved into it. And you had a mix of ages, and you had a lot of younger people as well, and you had people in their 50s, no doubt, they were there. And some of them would, would have found it difficult. But other things were beginning to happen in the environment. If it's within a matter of um, three years, you had the Ahanish Illumina plant taking off. The environment was beginning to change. There were new opportunities and new employment in Shannon. The Raheen Industrial Estate was developing in Limerick at the time. So within a two- to three-year period, things had moved on quite significantly. Uh, within, um, within four years of it closing down, which is not a long time when you consider it, um, as I said, you had the Ahanish development, you had the expansion of uh, the cement factory, major construction, you had the development of Money Point down in the estuary, and that would have um, sucked up available labour and also pushed a lot of money back into that whole regional economy. And there were... Uh, uh, it's, it's difficult to remember everything that was going on in the aftermath, but there were... Uh, while the environment was beginning to be difficult, there were still some employment opportunities in that area, um, both in assembly and manufacturing and construction, which were not there in, in other areas. I, mean, I know, for example, that in, say, the construction of Ahanish, that daily there were around six or 700 people travelling up and down from Cork, you know, you know that, that that could absorb um, that number of people into the local economy uh, and generate a lot of activity out of it as well that is beginning to fade now from the folk memory because after that, 
um, the country took off. And we now have some of the biggest multinational corporations in the world working here. I mean, we have Dell Corporation here with nearly 5,000 people working in the city, which gives great um, employment and, uh, to those people. So when that thing began to happen, and uh, we were at one stage, we had a very, very high employment rate nationally and um, in the city, where some parts of the city with 35% black spots in unemployment. I'm thinking about the northern um, part of the city now with the housing estates. And that all went down. We were down to 4 and 5% unemployment. So in, in the human, natural human progression of things, people tended to forget the bad old days because there were a lot of them, most of them, were working now and getting good regular weekly wages and that and enjoying themselves and, and supporting their families. Um, he was, what was it open? Six years, was it? Six years. Yeah, yeah. The money wasn't great, but it was better than what they were getting before. Yeah, he said, he, was, he said, I won't work for anybody any morning. And so he said, I'm going to do something for myself. And I said, that's fine by me, carry on. So he did. And he did very well in it. He opened a shop over there and he had a van that he went with groceries. And when he retired from that, he went, um, he used to go back and visit all the old people that he used to meet. He had lovely customers. He was always, he was always a very pleasant man. Always. And he could get on with anybody, you know. Well, I, I learned a number of things um, about the way people deal with problems. I learned the way individuals deal with problems and the way the collective deals with problems, and they're often dramatically different things. And if you like, it was my schooling in, uh, in the, the hard side of industrial relations. I mean, I sometimes forget those lessons, as we all do, but uh, it, it, it was, from that point of view, it was, it was important to me in the career that I followed since then in trying to tune myself into how different elements, different groups react to, to problems and how to deal with problems and how not to deal with them sometimes. Uh, it was invaluable in that sense. Uh, people that I would have been close to uh, at that time have sort of moved on in, in, in different directions. Uh, I mean, we, some of us we were forced close by the circumstances that, that we were in and uh, it's we, people move on and you you uh, drift on and you don't uh, you'd always keep up the contacts you had um, and that's, that's probably unfortunate If you've enjoyed this documentary you might like to try other RTE Radio podcasts visit rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash podcast